0: Lord, what a start to our morning with a song that reminds us of the name of God. Your name is the explanation of who you are. All of your essence and glory is rolled up in this name that causes every knee to bow someday. Lord, we thank you for that. And then our participation as we sang with the worship team to bring glory to you. Great songs, new and old. Lord, what a great morning we've had, and we thank you that now we can turn to your Word. Lord, as we wrestle through a very difficult passage in 1 Corinthians 7, Lord, cause us to love your Word more than our experiences. Cause us to believe the Bible when our, when our feelings and our emotions want to think something different. Lord, this is about the sufficiency of your Word. It never changes. It plunges through culture it crashes through walls of society and it holds true no matter what time it's ever read in and so lord we thank you for the word lord we pray for those who still can't be with us some still ailing from illnesses some that just can't make it back lord and we pray that they're watching even now and they would be encouraged thank you for our missions around the world our missionaries who serve you may you continue to use riverbend church as a lighthouse both here and globally We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say a cowboy's job is never done until the herd is through the gate. Tom, you and I might be the only ones that know what that means. (laughs) Got to get the herd home. That's when you know your work is done. You've brought the herd in and the gate is closed. Gene and I had the opportunity to have a ranch for many years. We did not have a large amount of cattle that we owned personally, but we managed a lot of cattle, thousands of cows for other people. And It was a great time for me to learn spiritual significance uh, of pasturing while on the back of a horse, learning to shepherd somebody else's belongings. That's what we do today as elders and pastors. We shepherd somebody else's flock. We give Him the glory. But we know the goal is to get Him through the gate. Get you home. Get you back with the Lord. Back where He wants you to be. Walking with Him and then finishing in eternity with Him. Along the way in the ranching world, there's a lot of rustlers out there. Still a massive industry of rustling. It's theft. It's terrible. Happens all the time. We had cattle shot and stolen throughout our years of Ranchling, but there are many spiritual wrestlers out there as well. And certainly we think of a false teacher would be one of those trying to sift off people from the flock and take them somewhere else. But there is another aspect of spiritual wrestling that comes from the desires of the flesh. Somebody gets an idea that they think they can be more holy than others, and they often try to perpetuate that thought, that that false desire onto others. And that's what we have going on in the church of Corinth. See, wrestling, spiritual wrestling, often comes in the form of pride and spiritual superiority. And that's the issue. There's this ascetic group that has risen within Corinth and they think that they have achieved some spiritual high other than others. And they are trying to sort off people from the herd so that they'll follow them. Well, Paul's goal is clear. He wants to concentrate the flock's minds and hearts on Jesus Christ. He wants them to hold to the Word of God, to hold to a Savior, no matter what their circumstances are. And there are many. As we look at 1 Corinthians 7, you see many circumstances. One after another, Paul has been picking these off trying to help those particular people in those particular situations not look to their own spirituality, but to look to Christ and fulfill their role. I think Paul's slogan, to live is Christ, to die is gain, is seen throughout all of his epistles, isn't it? To live is Christ. Just think about that phrase for just a moment. Does that define you? Does that define your marriage or your singleness? To live is Christ. Hmm, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? I think we'd all go, Ooh, I can think about my last week and say, Ugh, I might not have been living for Christ. But many of you would probably say, Pastor, I have a strong desire for that. See, when you know that you are, use this word, listen to this word, consistently living for Christ, fear of death, desire for heaven grows. It's a marker. It helps us understand that. Well, like our life, Paul was battling a church that was robbing that, trying to rob that desire to live for Christ. It was coming from great adversaries. And they were seeking to defeat him. They were rejecting his counsel. And they were causing others to stumble along the way. And we know that Christians stumble in our walk from time to time. And particularly when it comes to relationships. Marriage is hard. (laughs) Talk about dying to self and living for Christ. This is where it often gets exposed, doesn't it? Singleness is no piece of cake either. It's difficult in a world like ours, difficult in a world like Corinth. And so Paul is is with great precision throughout this text showing the will of God that both singles and married people follow Christ, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of the naysayers. He wants them to follow Christ. The pastors, we face very similar opposition today, like Paul did we battle with experience over truth many counseling appointments are are the, the beginning stages are wrestling against an experience over the sufficiency of scriptures well you don't know well i i just can't imagine that truth being being really really what we're supposed to be living so we battle that trying to help god's flock fight their their own thoughts of Scripture and what God says to order to find the joy of obedience. When we cowboyed, there would always... I worked on many ranches. And each ranch would have a set of corrals and, and there you would bring cattle in and you would work them and, and give them shots and doctor them and all the things that kind of go with cattling and ship them as well. Well, cattle know they don't like those corrals. <laughs> and 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 what's interesting is i and i thought about this illustration as i was thinking about corinth is as you're going towards those corrals that that ranch built those corrals where it's easy it flows right in and the cattle run in or they made it very difficult and all it takes and, and as I thought about corinth all it takes is one cow a couple of lead cows to turn the whole herd see that's what paul's against There's a few that are trying to lead this group away. And Paul is trying to reach them and teach them that God has a better way to know him and to walk with him. And so he's given such great instructions. Let me blow through just real quickly a review of what we've learned so that we can understand this next group that he wants to deal with. First, the Apostle Paul is responding to this statement that they gave in chapter 7, verse 1. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. We realize this was an ascetic group. They're trying to drive people away from any part of intimacy, right? They're teaching that they could be more spiritually superior if they're not involved in any sexual involvement, whether married or single. You can catch this um, agnostic flavor that was in their instruction as they pursued this higher spiritual ground. This group had encouraged spouses, think about this, as we learn this, they were encouraging spouses to leave their husband or wife, but if they won't leave, have no intimacy with them. That's what they were teaching. And so the the spouse, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 2 through 4, should never neglect each other physically. Physically except for a time of prayer. They should be giving themselves wholly to it, giving the authority of their own bodies over to the spouse. There's this beautiful instruction on unity and oneness that protects from Satan's attack on a marriage. Paul does that through verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. In 6 and 7, Paul could not help but wish that all people were like him. He, He had now been made single. He had received this gift of freedom from from strong desires for, for intimacy, and he could serve the Lord with his whole being, and he enjoyed that, but yet, even in that, Paul knew that each person receives a gift from God, this singleness, this freedom from that intimacy or the strong desires, or he's given the marriage, and he makes that clear. In verses 8 and 9, Paul then challenges those who are single, divorced, separated, widowed or a widower, to live holy lives, not to participate in, in the immorality that was known there in Corinth. And what a challenge that is. Today we see everything targeted towards our singles to live immorally. And if you have a problem, we have a drug to fix it. But Paul said, no, no. Live godly lives. Paul understood that not everybody was given the freedom of this these desires. And so marriage was there. It's given as an exception to go be married and not fall into sin like the rest of the world around them. Then Paul turns to another group, the married in verses 10 and 11 there, and he challenges them through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who echoed the words of God in the garden to remain married and glorify God in their marriage. He reminded them that leaving their spouses for for some kind of higher superiority was nothing but a godless pursuit, just opposite of what was being told them. Paul gives clear instruction that reminds the reader that God, God hates divorce. He hates divorce and he hates all the consequences that come with it. So in essence, Paul was teaching that each person should remain as they are, not strive from some spiritual superiority by by pursuing celibacy. (laughs) That was not the way to gain a greater knowledge and greater spiritual life. So Paul has spoken to many different groups here. He's spoken to the married, to the singles, to the divorced, the separated, the widowed, the widower. But there's still another group he wants to challenge. He wants to challenge one more group that they would not fall into the the tragic teaching of this spiritual superiority through divorce. And that group is those married believers who are married to an unbeliever. No, the text doesn't reveal it. I think Paul understood this. My personal belief is that Paul was married at one time. Most theologians believe that, but what happened to her is, is unknown. Did she die? Did she divorce him? How long did they live in this unequally yoked when Paul came to faith in Acts chapter 9? We don't know these things, but Paul does. He understands this. He understands the difficulties. And yet he says, as has been his consistent message throughout this, remain as you are. Do not seek to try to do something different to gain some kind of spiritual superiority. This pressure was strong. This ascetic group was, was leading people. They were leading people within the church to pursue this higher superiority. Paul's immediate reaction is to say, do not pursue divorce. That's what the text will say. You'll see it over and over, and we'll see it in the text today. Don't initiate it. But just as before, now remember, this is what he does, just as before, God leads him to explain an exception. There are exceptions. And we've seen that in each and every group. He has shown that there is a biblical exception to the rule. The rule is to remain as you are, but God in his kindness and grace for those who suffer, he has made exceptions. Now, it seems evident that, This issue came from them. He's he's not making this up as he's going. He He is responding to their letter. They're the ones challenging them. They're the ones telling married people to leave their unbelieving spouses. So Paul is taking this on, and he sees this as sinful, and it's a wrong pursuit. So he's going to argue that there's something greater here, even, listen to this, even in an unequally yoked relationship, there's something greater that God can do. And this is his point this morning. Remember this. Most of the time, Paul gives an exception that's really real and possible, but it's not ideal. And This is the way he speaks. And though it is allowed, it is not to be pursued. So this morning, I want to look at four thoughts to help that unequally yoked glorify God. And you may say, well, Scott, I guess I don't have to pay attention because I'm married to a Christian or I'm single. No, no, no. You know somebody in this situation. And our goal as a church, a body of Christ, is to hold up one another, build one another up. This will help you in your parenting. There is a lot in here that will help you as a parent to really strive to point your children towards Christ because because the marriage in an unequally, unequally yoked situation has tremendous consequences. And so there's much for all of us here. Four thoughts. Number one, persevering in an unequally yoked marriage. Verses 12 through 13. Look at these passages with me. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Well, this little passage here now is taking on a new group of people. He's dealt with all these others. Now he's looking to this new group, this group that's unequally yoked. There's a believer and an unbeliever in a legal marriage. And this is how he addresses it. But notice he says, but to the rest. (laughs) That's what he's doing. (laughs) And I love that. Paul has taken on every aspect that could be found within the church. Widowed, widower, divorced, separated, married, single. He's taken them all on because he wants each and every person of the church know how to conduct themselves in a pleasing way to God. But notice this. He says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, here's an abused passage. Uh, there's been many people that say, well, I guess I don't have to listen. This is just Paul coming up with something. Oh, that could not be farther from the truth. See, in no way does this mean that Christ's instructions are insufficient. That would be a very false thinking. Or that because Christ didn't deal with this particular subject, that is not important. And Paul's just out there rambling on his own. Oh, no, not at all. See, God has led Paul to deal with aspects of marriage that Jesus did not touch on. Now, that happens a lot. When you start to think about the scriptures and you think about marriage and other things, the the apostles dealt with all kinds of things that Jesus did not talk about. The apostle Paul gives the greatest description of marriage in Ephesians 5 as a picture of Christ in the church. Jesus did not bring that up. So, you see, what we're after is the sufficiency of God's word. We don't, let me say this very carefully because I could get a letter on this one. (laughs) Red lettered Bibles (laughs) sometimes make people think that Jesus' words are greater than the rest of the scriptures, and Jesus would never, never teach that. All of the scriptures are sufficient. So here, what's happening in this text is Paul is teaching on further instruction that God has inspired him on so that we understand how to conduct ourselves. Christ and the church would be one. Winning a spouse to the Lord. We'll see that at the end of the message where Peter spends time with that. uh, Glorifying God in your marriage is all through the Bible. And yet, many of these things Jesus did not touch on in his ministry. So when you see that passage, don't let somebody take you down the road that, well, I, I just don't believe this passage because it's just Paul talking. Oh, That's someone who doesn't believe the Bible. But we, we believe the Bible. We believe all of it. So hold to that. Now, doubtlessly Paul was responding to this ascetic group, right? And he's, he seems to be encouraging believers to stay with their unbelieving spouses while they're doing just the opposite. And what he's doing is he's leaving no stone unturned in this passage. He wants to deal with everybody. So in verses 12 through 16, you'll notice a very balanced approach to husbands and wives. He gives equal time to each spouse. And it's a clear teaching here that believers are not to initiate divorce. Now, I know that's costly. Uh, Through many years of ministry, I have counseled in some of the most difficult situations where divorce is now given as an exception by the Bible. So two, and we'll talk about this more today, is adultery and abandonment. But I've often taken them to this passage. Hang in there. I I know you have the right, and I'm I'm not going to stop you, but give room for God. So Paul is is trying to encourage these believers not to give in to this pressure by this ascetic group, even though it may be costly. I, I don't totally know all the rules and laws here, but there are some states that I've ministered in. The first one to file gets more. What a disturbing law. And I've counseled, particularly women, I know this may be costly, but your God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Wait on him. Give him room. I think it would be helpful to give a little bit of historical context here as we think about this text. Here in Corinthians and in the town of Corinth in this great city is this highly religious group of people. They're they're very pagan in their culture, and they worship all kinds of deities. If you look into this Greco-Roman world, there may be the head of the house, and he may worship a certain deity, and then the spouse may worship another. And often this would drive them apart and divorce, whether legally documented or just abandonment would happen. See, Paul didn't want a Christian marriage to an unbeliever, to act like the world. Divorce happens. It's in here in this room, right? And there are exceptions the Bible gives. But what Paul does not want is Christians to act like unbelievers, to give up the testimony of God. So despite the difficulties of the one who's worshiping the true and living God opposed to the spouse that's worshiping some dead pagan deity, Paul is encouraging, at least in the beginning, stay in the marriage. Now, remember this. It isn't just two people with different religions. (laughs) That's Corinth, right? There's gross immoralities in the religions. And, And listen, Paul's writing a very clear and very hard letter here knowing that believers suffer consequences because they're married to unbelievers. Everything from diseases to financial problems to parenting. its The list goes on, doesn't it? And so Paul is not, not aware of that, right? He knows that. Doubtless he was married even into a Pharisee family. He understood what it was to be unequally yoked, and yet he's reminding them, hang in there. Look at verses 12 and 13 with that thought. Think about the ramifications and instructions that we've just given. Think about the strong arming of this ascetic group as we read this one more time to see the emphasis that Paul's putting there. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is unbelieving and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her. She must not sin. Same word as divorce. We just translate it different. Same Greek word. She must not divorce her husband. There is still a danger in the church for believers to divorce without confirmed adultery or abandonment. Some grow great and weary in this spiritual struggle. Some of them go through things that those of us that have marriages are maybe a little more consistent, walk with the Lord, we don't always understand. But Paul here, Paul is saying stay in it till God releases you. Second thought, verse 14, the grace of God on display in an unequally yoked marriage. The grace of God on display in unequal marriage. We, you'll, you'll marriage. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her hus- believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Well, to give balance to his charge, Paul reverses the order. Notice that. He reverses it here. In verse 14, he's showing first the effects of a believing wife to an unbelieving husband, and then he reverses it, right? But there's a couple of difficult words in this passage that we've got to figure out, right? One is this word hagiadzo, sanctified, and then a very similar word, similar root word, hagias, which is the word holy. We've got to do work and try to figure this out, because this is important to understand what Paul's talking about. Now, Paul's used both these words in chapter 1, verse 30, And he's used it in in chapter 6, verse 11. But here they were really set to a a salvific uh, setting, right? So whatever they mean in this passage, we we have to think about our theology here and our doctrine of soteriology. It cannot carry the same force as those other passages. Paul uses the word hagiadzo to teach of our salvation, that God set us apart for salvation. But is that what he's teaching here? The answer is no, because there's no way that somebody else can save someone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So our soteriology tells us that that's not what Paul's saying. He is not saying that a Christian wife or a Christian husband, because they're a Christian, the other people get in. That would go against Scripture, wouldn't it? Scripture and church and Scripture. So, we know it's not that. So, it's important to try to figure this out, right? And Paul would say that was just nonsense to believe that because verse 16 says, Oh, do you not know a wife, or Oh, do you not know a husband, whether you will save your wife or husband? So, the, the whole goal is salvation while you wait on the Lord. So, he wouldn't be talking out of one side of his mouth and then another. Now, Most likely what's happening here is this ascetic group in Corinth was teaching that believers would be defiled, unclean, because they're married to an unsaved person. That's what's going on here. And they should divorce so that you're not defiled and you will be clean and you'll have this higher spiritual superiority because you're not married to this pagan. Well, Paul shows just the opposite here. In fact, he shows that both children and the unbelieving spouse were sanctified through this believing wife and husband. Now, certainly, being married to an unbeliever, or unequally yoked, we might say, is difficult, it's frustrating. Um, Doubtlessly, at times, it's very discouraging. But Paul clearly teaches here, it's not defiling. And for those in this room, or they're listening online, I want you to know... If you are in a situation where you're unequally yoked, you are a believer and your spouse is not, you are not defiled. Paul wants that record set straight. So obviously, sanctification does not refer to salvation in this text, but it refers to being set apart. That's the main idea of the root word that we get hagiadzo and hagiash from this idea of holiness. It's used of, of place uh, furniture in the tabernacle that's set apart for the holy use of God. We, there's, a, there's a wide range of use of this word. But it has this basic interpretation here. God sanctifies. God sets apply. And so the term sanctification is applied to the marriage and family, not the positional stance of a person. Does that make sense? So God has, because of that believing spouse, has set them aside and I'll explain this in a moment, but it is not saying he has positionally saved them. That would make salvation by works, particularly through someone else. Now, I truly believe that this is just the kindness of God. And it's to give hope. It's give hope to those who are in difficult situations. I believe it's God reminding the believing spouse that because he saved them, that their home, their family, now has a special blessing on it now has <clears throat> has been set apart for his glory because they're in it. And although the home and family is not Christian in the fullest sense, I think what Paul is teaching is here is the home has the blessing of God on it because one of his children is in it. Now, even though in this time here and even now, there's difficult circumstances that an unbeliever can create in a home, right? Unbeliever can create difficult things in a home. Some of you know this better than others. God still sets that home apart because one of his own who is indwelt by his spirit is in that home. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. There's, there's a believer in this home in, in whom, now think with me, With whom God himself has implanted, indwelled, chose to reside in his spirit in that person. Now, if that isn't holiness, I don't know what is. I've said many times from the pulpit, the most holy place in the entire world is where you're sitting if you're a believer. Because you have the holiness of God residing in you through the spirit of God. Don't quench him right? And, and, and so here now, this husband, this wife who is in this difficult position can find hope, and he can find the kindness of God to press on because this powerful presence of God is indwelling him or her, and is often the tool that God uses to save that person. And you and I who are in Christian marriages or Maybe we're widowed or widowed, widowed widowed or widower or single or whatever our case may be. We should encourage these dear brothers and sisters. God can do great things. Now, by no means, if you're single, you should pursue an unbeliever. I've had people say, well, look, God just powers people because they'll they'll make people holy around them. That is absolutely sinful and completely against God's will. Go listen to the testimony of some dear brother or sister who's married to an, uh, an unbeliever and let them tell you how difficult life is. And I promise you they will lead you away from that. However, sometimes believers find themselves in this situation for various reasons. Maybe they were unsaved when they got married and one of the spouses got saved. Maybe they were disobedient and married an unsaved person. And maybe they thought their spouse was saved, but as marriage went on, they began to realize that was a lie. So there's many reasons why we find people in this difficult situation, and Paul understands that. And so he's wanting to help them. I think through the years of ministry, I've had several Believers that have been in this role that impacted my life incredibly because of their display of the love of God in a very difficult situation. Their names come on my heart and mind often when I go to counsel someone else. Because God let me witness men and women who stayed in an unequally yoked marriage with tremendous heartache and hurt and and just thinking about eternity alone is difficult. Some of you know this. And yet they acted godly throughout it. And this is what the Lord's doing. He's, He's encouraging them. But the fact that God blesses others for the sake of believers is nothing new. He does this, right? God does this. Uh, just start at the beginning of your Bible, right? Genesis chapter 6, there's this Noah. He's very righteous. He comes on the one-way door into the ark, and he brings a wife and three sons and the daughter-in-laws. Nothing's said about them. In fact, it doesn't take long when the flood's over. Old Ham, the father of the Canaanites, we start to see what his heart's really like. So God often does this. Trees of memory. Genesis 18, pre-incarnate Christ shows up, begins to tell um, Abraham, look, I'm going to go destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He already sends the two angels. They're already gone. And Moses and, and the pre-incarnate Christ begin to have this conversation, right? He says, if there's 50. Will you save the town if there's 50? He goes, if there's, if there's 50 people there, I'll save it. And you know that story, right? He works down to 40 and 30, and he's actually, towards the end, he's going... Okay, God, don't be mad. I'm going for 20. (laughs) And eventually he gets out of 10, and and there the the Lord just says, Okay, there's 10. And then you follow the story. The angels go there, and Lot's begging his son-in-laws and daughters to come with them. He knows that the grace of God given through him, this message that he has, will free them from certain destruction. And they don't follow Two daughters do, and they become, through terrible sinfulness, they become the nation of Moab that is a thorn in the flesh of Israel throughout their existence. See, God often takes believers and cares for and protects unbelievers because the blessing that falls on them, it is not salvific, it is God's blessing. One of my favorite baptisms that happened right here was of a man who was married for many years to his wife, who was still married and still in this church, who rejected Jesus Christ. But she kept praying. And she kept being a godly influence. And God saved him. It's one of my top ten baptismal testimonies. I always think about it. It brings such joy to my heart because she remained faithful. To an unsaved man. And God saved him. And he now both of them are vital parts of this ministry. You see, these verses teach us that God looks on the family as a unit. Even though there may be some spiritual division within them, he sees the family as a unit. And God sees the believer in the family. And he sees the entire whole... The household and, and how grace comes to that household, not for salvation, but for protection and blessing and biblical instruction through this love and grace that this believer has. Oh, well, if you're in this situation or you know someone in this situation, encourage them. God loves to save, doesn't He? And He often uses difficult situations to bring people to Christ. But look at the end of verse 14. It says this, and we've got to deal with this too for otherwise your children are unclean. And then this phrase, but now they are holy. Well, Remember, there's this constant thread of an ascetic group that's teaching defilement. And they're pushing to separate from these sinful people. And they're claiming to the Corinth Christians that you're unequally yoked and so your children are defiled. That's what's going on here. But again, Paul will have none of this. And this is why he keeps saying, stay as you are throughout this instruction. And Paul's giving hope to these Christian parents, right? To their ch- that their children are not defiled. They're not unclean. How terrible is that? I- I'm involved with several families where there's an unequally yoked relationship there. Can you imagine going to them and saying, "Well, oh, your kids are unholy. They're defiled. This is what was going on in the order to become more superior than others. Paul's not going to have none of that. And again, this isn't assurance of salvation. That's Unfortunately, there, there's some aspects of covenant theology that go too far with us. And this is their verse, right? They say, well, if you're born into to a Christian, then you're a Christian. And, you know, that's it. Which, again, teaches works and the works of the parents and so forth. So, we, so that's not what I don't, he's not talking about that. I think this is a promise to protect Satan um, Protected this child and this family from Satan's schemes and his sinful harm that he would bring. And it's a reminder that they will receive spiritual blessing because of that believer. Many times I've counseled a believer in this situation and said, stay in it. You bring protection to this family because you're there. And where you are, the Spirit of God is. Stay in it. Hang on. Let us Let us love on you and counsel you and care for you. Let us surround you with prayer and and, and help you grow. But it's holy because God has placed his spirit in there. And so this presence of this believing parent, because of that, the children are called holy. Meaning, listen, meaning God uniquely sets them apart and protects them through this believing spouse. And how often have we heard testimony of people raised with one parent or a grandparent that knew Jesus Christ and that they gave glory to God that there was this one parent or one grandparent that stood for truth and they're here today because God used that person. Let me give you a great analogy. Timothy. (laughs) The one who takes the torch from Paul Is there because there's a believing mom and a grandma that instill truth in him? Oh, we have a great role. You're not done, grandparents. It is nice to hand them back. I am enjoying that. But we're not done. Our job is to continue to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must not miss the importance of a worshipful life of a believing spouse. I know I I can think of some that my, Scott, I I come to church, I read my Bible, but it seems to have no effect. You can't see the future. You can't see what God's doing. And God may use your testimony to bring that family member to faith. And, and, And think about this. This is a hard one, but let me just put it out there. In worst case, he'll use your testimony in judgment of that person someday. You can see it before the great white throne. You rejected me. I put one of my children in your home, and you rejected me. See, there's many roles that this believing spouse plays. Do you need encouragement today? Spouse with an unbeliever? This is your verse. Do you need need to know how to encourage somebody in this situation? This is it. Come around them. And finally, on this point, the greatest example, there can be no greater example of how to love and how to live with an unbelieving spouse than the Lord Jesus Christ. You go, was he married? No, but think about him, right? He's the ultimate picture of love. You've got to run to him, brother or sister. Run to his example as the ultimate picture of love. Love when others hate. <laughs> That's what He did. He loved the brokenhearted. He loved the disabled. He loved the weak. He loved the lost. Father, what? Forgive him. I mean, he's your ultimate example. You have to go to him. He's the ultimate example of submission. Father, not my will, but yours. Ladies, Christ is still the example for submission. And men, he's the example for leadership. He leads in very difficult circumstances. He leads a group of men to go through the fire and he's out in front of them. And he's still out in front of us today. He's always the example. He's the example of truth. He's the example of sacrifice. He's the example of suffering. He's the example of lost. He he lost. He suffered. He was rejected and despised by men. He knows what it is. Oh, he's our our example, isn't he? Ask him to help you. He won't abandon you. He'll help you live these truths out to your unbelieving spouse. Third thought. The sustaining power of peace of God to love in an unequally yoked marriage. Look at verse 15 with me. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother and sister is not under bondage in such case, but God has called us to peace. Paul's instructions throughout this chapter say as you are. Do not leave your current status in order to gain some spiritual superiority. That's what he's teaching here. But within each situation, notice he gives an exception. See, he knows the grace of God in his own life. He knows the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave an exception for adultery as he taught in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. So to the believer who is married to an unbeliever, Paul challenges them not to pursue divorce. And yet he says, here's the exception, yet if an unbeliever one leaves, let him leave. In other words, if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, abandons it, that's the term we want to use here, then divorce is allowed. Now certainly Jesus taught that divorce was allowed through idolatry. And between the words of Jesus, the inspired testimony of Paul, we establish biblical grounds for divorce. It is adultery and abandonment. But it's important to note this term brother and sister here, isn't it? Look at that in verse 15. See, Paul's clarifying that the believer is no longer bound to marriage if the unbelieving spouse will no longer reside with them. And, and notice it says, is not under bondage in the NASB in such cases. The word bondage is this dulo is this Greek word. It's in a perfect passive. Um, it can be easily translated to be enslaved. And I think maybe some of you in here could really resonate with that. It's difficult being married to an unbelieving spouse. There is an enslavement type of feeling there. And what a great reminder to those um, that are seeking to get married. You You want to marry an unsaved person? The Bible tells us right here, you're seeking enslavement. Because he says, you're free. You're free from this now if that person will leave. So it's a reminder. You look at this, you go, oh, single, do not chase and pursue someone outside of the will of God. You'll find yourself in enslavement. How many in here would echo that to somebody? The dangers of those things. But to help them understand uh, how difficult this situation is, he uses a perfect passive there. I started really working hard to learn my Greek here and try to apply the syntax here to try to understand why he would use that type of syntax. And so I think the perfect reminds us that this unequally yoked marriage began at a definite time, but, has, but as far as the believer was concerned, it was permanent. So, so though you find yourself in an unequally yoked m- marriage, you should look at that as permanent until God releases you through this abandonment. It's passive because it reminds us that the believers should accept this marital situation that's happening to them and seek to please God through it. So I think this is extremely important because some believers have attempted to drive their unbelieving spouses away. If they could just get them to fulfill this verse, then I'll be free. I don't think that's what he's teaching here. God gave you a marriage. You should commit to it. Though it's not what God wanted in the the fact of two believers, this is where you're at. You should pursue this marriage for the glory of God. But in the end, in the end, He'll release you. See, He's he's teaching this person to lean on the powerful peace of God to sustain this person. And out of these, these folks that I've met with through the years, That was what came out. They would say, Pastor, God sustained me. He sustains me through. Because there's times I said, you know, you know you have it out. This person has done this or this to you. And and they said, God has not released me. This is their choice. And they said, because God is actually sustaining me to stay in this marriage. Now, maybe your spouse hasn't done adultery or abandonment. But God will sustain you will sustain you. There's one more real important thought in this verse. It says, but God, at the end there, has called us to peace. Hmm. Well, the question is whether this call to peace refers to the dissolving of the marriage or to the preservation of the marriage. Well, in a way, and I, we don't like to we like to land somewhere. But in a way, I think he's talking about both. And let me see if I can explain this. I believe it's a summation of the statements gathered here by verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 and 13, don't divorce an unbelieving spouse. The peace of God will be enough. Verse 14, because you are sanctified, they are sanctified through you. Because the peace of God will help you and help you understand that you've, you've been set apart here. Verse 15, the first half Here's the exception. If they choose to leave, let them do so. Do it peacefully. God will give you a peace in that. He'll help you get through that difficult situation. And then the end of 15, but rather the really another form of an exception, live in the present calling in peace. And here it comes to a, a more present tense Uh, active type here. Be content in your situation. And then verse 16, be at peace with God because he may save your spouse. So it's tremendous instruction, isn't it? And and this is our job as counselors, as friends, as loved ones, is to help these ones that are in this situation to live at peace with God and, and strive for peace in this difficult situation. So, I believe God's calling the believer to exercise a particular gift of the Spirit, the Spirit of peace, right? Love, joy, peace. Now, why they remain married to an unbeliever, they're to strive for this peace. And even if the unbelieving spouse seeks to abandon the marriage, they should tackle that with peace. We shouldn't look like the world, even. Listen to this, I know this is hard. Even in divorce. That's what Paul's after. See, this is a powerful, peaceful love, isn't it, he's talking about. And I believe this believing spouse is to to know God and know that there's still a possibility that this spouse can be saved. Many of our ladies in here have asked me to pray for their husbands that are unsaved. And I regularly pray for them. Because I want them to know Jesus. Jesus. And I want God to use you in this process. I know this is easier said than done. This is a hard verse, isn't it? I know it's easier said than done, but God, He gives you a church. He gives you those who know the Word of God to help you and counsel you in these difficult times. And so Christians seek the calling of peace. Last thought, and this is a powerful one. God radically... God's radically different perspective. God's radically different perspective to stay in an unequally yoked marriage. Look at this perspective. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, we know that we can't save another person the context is clear that God will use this peace that passes all understanding to bring an unbelieving spouse through your testimony of Jesus Christ to him or to, to himself and so I believe Paul is seeking to put their Christianity into a radically different perspective when we're hurt we run that's what we do He says, stay. It's going to take everything that God can give you to do this. See, it's radical, isn't it? You don't know. And so Paul is encouraging the believer not to seek change based on their own needs. Because their relationship with God is greater than their marital status. Isn't it? You have the Spirit of God living within you. And so the apostle is giving no promises that the marriage will be saved, that other person will be saved, but yet he is telling them to pursue this peace in, in, in case, in the fact, because Paul is an omniscient, but there might be a possibility that he's going to save that loved one. And so give room for God. I want to close with just one passage and then we're going to sing a song and close. But go to First Peter chapter 3. I can't think of a better passage to end on, and this has encouragement for all of us in it. But boy, does it really uh, hit this vein that Paul is teaching on. First Peter chapter three, verse one through seven. I've got to hurry. So Peter starts this passage out and says, "In the same way," and that's really important because Christ was the greatest example of how to suffer at the hands of unbelievers, in verses 21 through 25 in the preceding text, teach you the greatest example how to suffer. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, listen what he did. He didn't threaten, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So he says, you wives, in the same way. Isn't this interesting? Be submissive. Word the world does not like. Be submissive to your own husbands. Look at this. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Now that could mean they're not saved to just living godlessly. And and I think in the context as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, let's just say that this is this. Many people believe that this is talking about an unbelieving husband. I I think it's wider than that. but, But say it is this. Look what it says. That they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Peace wins. Love, the love of God wins. It's not just love wins. Terrible slogan running around there. The love of God wins. And notice how it's done. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And be careful with those words. That's just godly behavior. From a female Christian. She dresses and thinks for her Savior. Not for society. Your adornment must not be merely external. Braiding of hair, wearing of gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses. That's all shallow. It's not spiritual. Yet he's not not forbidding it here. It's okay, gals, you can get your hair done. I think that's good. But then look at verse 4 here. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, which is imperishable. Clothes and hairdos and all that stuff's going to go away. But there's a quality of gentleness and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's a statement never said of anybody else but a wife. It's an amazing statement. Godly, peaceful, loving An unbeliever is is, is precious to Almighty God. And then to put some context to this, look at verse 5. For in this way, in former times, holy women also who hoped... There's a key word. I have it marked in my Bible, and it says key word. (laughs) I'm reading it. Who hoped in God. Used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And then he uses a particular situation that Is jaw dropping. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. Let's go back to Genesis. Look, Sarah, you're a beautiful woman. They're gonna kill me when they see you to get you. So here's what we're gonna do you're gonna be my sister. And we're gonna lie so my hide doesn't get hung. And by the way, you're gonna end up in harems. Not once, but twice. This is full-out sex slavery and abuse at its highest rate. And I do not contone any of this. Do not say I'm here going, oh, go wife, go into some abusive thing. If you're being abused, we want to know about it, we want to come help you. We do not want this to happen. But I'm just telling you what the Bible says here. This woman, Sarah, who we remember laughing at the words of the pre-incarnate Christ that she's going to have a child, of giving her handmaiden to Abram so that they can have a child in some weird, sadistic way. Right? That's how we remember, not God. Because God forgives and removes. And he remembers this woman as a godly woman who got put into an awful situation and she put her, what? Hope in God. And God sustained her. And I'd love to give Abraham one of these for doing that to her. But God wanted to use her, and she's now in the hall of faith. Hebrews 11, you'll find her there by faith, by faith. She's a godly woman because her hope was in God, not in herself. And notice this last phrase. She didn't live by fear. Fear is a detriment to your walk with Jesus. We've watched fear rack this world these last couple of years. Not believers. We have an awe and reverential fear of our God Almighty. And we don't let that fear dictate our decision to what? Obey Him. Husbands, you thought you got off the hook. Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, in the same way you need to learn what it means to suffer for the glory of God. Live with your wife in an understanding way, and that might be struggle she has, and that might be that she's not saved. says it's someone weaker, and she's weaker because she has put herself, because she loves God, in submission to you, and you don't dare take advantage of that in a sinful way. Because the end of verse says God's not going to listen to you. And men, if there's any great fear that we would ever have, is that almighty God and Savior would not hear us. And if you're not scared about that, you're not in the faith. <laughs> That's how serious that is. And there's an equality to us. We're equal yet different because we have different roles, but we're equal because we're all joint heirs of the grace of life. See this. And this is this is what this I think Peter is taking this, what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians seven, and he's taking it to a very real, very right in your face type of illustration. Father. These are not easy passages especially in our society today, especially not in Corinth. Man was willfully arrogant of his sexuality in Corinth, and man is willfully arrogant of their sexuality today. Pride and self dominates every, rela- every relationship, and the end is just destruction. But not for the Christian, Lord. You have a different plan. You want... The Christian uh, Christian husband, the Christian wife, despite their situation, you desire them and have equipped them and have given them the spirit and the word of God so they can live godly lives in this present world. And so Lord, finally I pray for those that this chapter might have really targeted this morning. Oh, strengthen them. Cause them to be godly examples for us all to witness and to give you glory. And Father, we pray, Like the text reminds us of verse 16, that you would save through that spouse, this erring, this unsaved spouse. Lord, protect their family. Sanctify them, set them apart. Put your blessing on that family for that believer's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.